Hello, everybody, and good evening. Welcome to the podcast. Today is January 7th, 2022, as measured in time. And that's going to be one of the themes today, as well as me talking about someone that uh, has been very important, influential, and a fine exemplar in his own words. And because it's January 7th, the day of his passing two years ago, this is why I am speaking of the inimitable Neil Peart. Musician, father, friend, writer, lyricist, drummer, and someone who I hold in very high regard as an honest example of a human being who constantly and consistently did his best, showed up, dealt what life had for him, and then figured out what's next. Because that was one of his mantras was what's next, no matter what happens in life, without knowing what you're going to do, but trusting your deep being. Now, I won't tell Neil's entire story. I don't know it in detail. I know him through his music, through his writing, through other people's reviews, through the perspective of the lens, from having seen Rush in concert three times, and listening to a few radio interviews over the years, because he only did a few. And his story is um, very human, and that's why he's going to be the first subject that I'm directly speaking of on the podcast. There will be many more, and the point of this is to be honest in speaking about how consciousness, self-consciousness, and ego-consciousness work through the human experience, the human condition, via a human being. I'm not necessarily going to say, give an opinion too deeply about whether it's positive, negative, but I'll talk about how we all deal with life and give you the perspective of the person I'm talking about in the moment to frame that. And then find the deeper universal meanings and truths of how it went for that person or how it's going for that person if it's someone current. So with Neil, I'd like to start at the end because I find it extremely intriguing. And I've been completely enamored with Rush's final studio album, Clockwork Angels, ever since his passing. I was already familiar with the album. I'd listened to it here and there, on and off, but it's interesting how music impacts you sometimes when it's needed or when you feel it or when you're aligned to it, and then it takes on a more complete meaning, whether that's personal or whether it's connecting to the intent of the musician, the lyricist, the band, whatever the case may be. So Rush, I believe, made 19 studio albums, and I started listening to them probably when I was about 14 or 15 after hearing a few of their current popular songs on the radio at a time when they were becoming popular in uh, mainstream radio for the first time. Now I'm going to skip all the way to the last album because there's a time in my life when I listened to moving pictures every day for well over a year. I'll talk more about this later. And, you know, it's always been one of my Desert Island Five, you know, those albums that if you were stranded, what could you listen to over and over? And, you know, moving pictures 
was and is an album I can put on anytime, and I enjoy it, plain and simply. And until a few years ago, you couldn't have convinced me that Rush had made a better album. I know I had already listened to Clockwork Angels in passing, but I hadn't felt the album all the way through, which means really listening. And now, I am going to say that it is my favorite Rush album. It may be my favorite complete album by anyone, anywhere, anytime. And the final song, my favorite song, it's hard for me not to shed tears every freaking time I hear it. And if you know me, if you're new to the podcast, you'll get to know me. And if you want to know more, head back to the beginning. I just started this after a life's journey investigating consciousness, self-consciousness, human ego, and how we can be authentic, feel our way through life, and find meaning. And that's why the garden means so much to me. So much. You know, I found myself sinking into it a couple years ago, and and inside just going very light in my heart, in my being, realizing that this final album is basically, to me, the autobiography that Neil never wrote. Every song being poignant to a, a part of his journey, the garden being the summary, what it's all about. And it means the same thing to me, and I can explain it in a universal way, which is why I'm bringing the two together and speaking of it right now. So to introduce the song, I'm just going to read something Neil himself wrote after um, the album had come out and he was um, doing interviews. What he said was, Long ago, I read a story from another timeline about a character named Candide. He also survived a harrowing series of misadventures and tragedies, then settled on a farm near Constantinople. Listening to a philosophical rant, Candide replied, That's all very well, but now we must tend our garden. I have arrived at that point in my own story. There is a metaphorical garden in the acts and attitudes of a person's life, and the treasures of that garden are love and respect. I have come to realize that the gathering of love and respect from others and for myself has been the real quest of my life. So Neil said that in 2012. And that hits me on so many levels because, well, I'm a gardener, for one. I have many parallels with Neil, which I'll hit upon as I speak here. Love and respect, I couldn't sum up um, what to try to achieve in life much better than that. For me, it's just a matter of where do those things come from? How true is it? How true does it ring? And so I'm going to sing and then talk about a little bit of the song, The Garden, just so that you can get a feel for it, and so I can have some touch points about how deep his understanding of life was from having lived it. In his own words, like it's like he quoted above, after listening to a philosophical rant, he said, that's great, but we must now tend our garden. In other words, we can talk philosophy all day. We can philosophize. We can come up with theories, ideas. We can say what the meaning of life is in a thousand different ways. But at the end of the day, or more poignantly, in the moment, we have to take care of what needs to be taken care of. And what is that? The garden. The garden of your soul. What are you here for? The garden of your body. How do you feel? 
the garden of your mind? What is in your mind? How did it get there? What do you want to do with it? And I talk a lot about that in my podcast and how to do it. Neil did it by living his life, allowing himself to feel. So here's the song. In this one of many possible worlds, all for the best or some bizarre test, it is what it is and whatever. Time is still the infinite jest. The arrow flies when you dream. The hours tick away and the cells tick away. The watchmaker keeps to his schemes. The hours tick away, they tick away. The measure of life is a measure of love and respect. So hard to earn, so easily burned. The measure of life is a measure of love and respect. So hard to earn, so easily burned. In the fullness of time, a garden to nurture and protect. So, hope I did that well enough. I can sing that song decently, but some days, the high notes, Getty Lee. If you're a Rush fan, you know the gig. But let's have a look at what he's had to say here. It's very whimsical in this one of many possible worlds, all for the best or some bizarre test? Well, obviously things aren't all for the best because things happen. Life happens. Nature happens. Accidents happen. You know, humans have been happening to ourselves for millennia ever since we developed this powerful self-conscious mind. And the ego mind wrapped within that that empowers us to be entitled to think so much and to create so much out of the natural world. And I'm going to use a crazy example. There'd be no deaths by aeroplane accidents if we had never invented aeroplanes. Yes, that's a simple thing to say, but it's true. So is this all some test? Some philosophies espouse that, you know, this is a test. And we go through lifetimes of learning and learning and unlearning and tragedies and horrors. And again, back to philosophy, who says it has to be that way? Maybe it is what it is and whatever. (laughs) the next line of the song exactly it is what it is and that's one of my mantras for people to meditate on to snap them to reality to deal with what they have to deal with right now because it's not going to go away and if it's an idea in your head it's not going to go away until you confront it by making a decision about it or dismissing it or acting on it that's really all we can do in any given moment time is still the infinite jest and of course time is a concept created by the human mind And I talk a lot about that in the podcast, and I'll go more deeply into it elsewhere. And the the jest is that, you know, if you haven't gotten where you want to go, you haven't figured it out, and yet time will continue to allow you to be in whatever state you're in, whether that's good or bad. You know, whether you're proud and egotistical about having achieved things, or whether you're wallowing in painful thoughts and giving yourself suffering, depression, anxiety, stress worry the arrow flies when you dream the hours tick away the cells tick away so if you get caught in dreamland if you get caught just 
idealizing, philosophizing about life, time passes. The hours tick away. He doesn't say the minutes or the seconds. But then he says the cells tick away. Your body. You are a ticking time bomb as such. You have an expiry date. Now, we all have a natural one, which we're getting further and further away from in society because of the way we live. But we have it. And it could happen tomorrow. The watchmaker keeps to his schemes. Now, in my mind, the watchmaker is the ego, is the one that's keeping an eye on you for you, that has plans, that has schemes about how you should live your life. And these are the the identities I talk about, that Eckhart talks about. The hours tick away, they tick away. So if you just pay attention to time, that's all you're going to notice is time passing. The measure of a life is a measure of love and respect. And now, what does that mean? The measure. Like time, you look at your watch, you can watch the second hand move. But of course, who made the watch? Who made the second hand? Who's watching it move? The ego. The mind. But the measure of a life being love and respect, those are feelings. Especially, and most poignantly, love without any condition. The measure of life is a feeling. And I've been saying since my awakening experience in 2014 that meaning is alive in feeling because we are feeling sensory beings. Everything about us initially is about feeling. All other life forms, feeling. Brains developed within life forms when they became more complicated as a way to compartmentalize and analyze and assess a more complicated environment. And humans have become so self-reflective, so self-conscious that we even have a a self-consciousness within our self-consciousness, which is the ego, that keeps an eye on the thoughts about the thoughts about the outside world, the environment that we've created. And so that's constant measuring. That's what our mind does. It constantly measures, compares, contrasts, judges, competes. But love has nothing to do with that. There's no time limit on love because love isn't a time. It's a feeling. Who you are is a feeling, which is why I harp on that, because it's a deep, ultimate truth. Whether you're one day old or turning a hundred, life is a feeling. So hard to earn, he says, so easily burned. And this is very telling, because Neil had extremely hard experiences in his life. He lost his daughter when she was a teenager 16 17 years old i believe and months later his first wife passed away from cancer very likely due to heartbreak as well exacerbating that and then he disappeared from the world for five years he was in the world of course he was in his own world he was healing he was healing his little baby soul as he liked to say himself but he did what he had to do which is why he told the story at the beginning about the harrowing series of misadventures and tragedies of the character Candide, because he could relate. He had gone through these things, and eventually the spark of music came back, and he, what what else was important to him, a love of expression of Neil Peart in this lifetime, returned. And it was natural for it to return, but it was also natural to mourn, to grieve, to run away a little bit. That's fine. And so he earned it. He's earned it, and this is one of the reasons I respect him as much as anyone I know, is that he earned everything. He, he earned his success. He earned his love. He earned his, his grieving time and he felt his way through it. 
and there's almost nothing I respect more than a human being who faces anything that happens in life honestly and goes through it because then they've honestly gone through it. His next line is one of my favorites and I'm not even sure if he knows how much he hit the nail on the head with this when he says, in the fullness of time, a garden to nurture and protect. Now, I've been studying human consciousness, the concepts of time, for 20, 25 years. And in 2014, when I had that experience of disconnecting from the mind, what went along with that was disconnecting from a sense of counting time. It was gone. Steve became just a feeling being in all his essence. And what's that like? That's a full feeling. And that is the moment right now being full, but being held as full through counted time, but without counting it. So in the fullness of time is where it's at. That is the enlightened experience of being right now, being present, having an aware presence, having an open awareness, as I like to speak of, meaning your attention is nowhere and therefore everywhere all at once without the mind interrupting and having an opinion about it to stop that from happening and to start trapping you in time. So amazing. But he, whether he was there all the time himself or not, doesn't matter. He understood it enough to appreciate it and be able to translate it. A garden to nurture and protect. Because we do have that responsibility for ourselves and for the ones around us, our community. That could encompass just the people right around you. It could encompass the entire human species. Or it could encompass life on earth. For me, it's all part of the the one life that we should be feeling so connected to that we only act in accordance with a mutual respect and balance and love for it at any given time. But we live in a world where we have constantly disconnected from it and built things from our mind into systems, structures, societies, civilizations. And again, this isn't a judgment about that. It's not... I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just indicating that it makes it harder to remain connected at a foundational level because the mind has so much to pay attention to. I'm even amazed at what happened in 2014 and that I've been holding that ever since. Because the fullness of time, the last seven years, if you look on the calendar, if you had... Uh, told me that was only seven years, I would have said, you're crazy. That feels like 20 years, whatever feeling like 20 years actually means. Because I've been acutely aware of feeling my life for the last seven years. And that's the fullness of time, which is really just the fullness of right now without anything interrupting it. So that was the first verse. I'm going to leave it there. I implore you to look up the song, The Garden. I, I just I don't have words, even though I'm trying, to explain a man I respect so much, a song I love dearly, that if I had to choose one song on this earth to hear again, that would be the one. Been their last song on their last album, being the best thing that they've ever put together. And again, I'm going to give... 
I'm going to give an overview of the whole last album at some point and break it down from the point of view of consciousness and how three beings can love each other and interrelate so much, what the priorities were, how they created the work they did, and um, how it mean, means so much and comes to mean so much to so many people, and how it's been influential in so many people's lives, not just mine. But let's just talk a little bit more about Neil. The first time I realized that I really un knew who Rush were was sitting in uh, the kitchen listening to the morning radio show, getting ready to go to, I believe, grade nine morning classes. And Spirit of the Radio came on. And I heard it. And the song itself kind of sparkled. And if you know the song, there's a bit of a sparkly element to it with some of the sounds, the lighter ting, the notes. And it just talks about, you know, music and how much music means, can mean, and that this amazing little radio machine transmits this to the masses. And music is such a connective thing because it's primal. It's one of the deepest ways in which material elements connect. It's primordial because as soon as there is vibration, as soon as there's movement, there's sound. Sound emanates. Now, not all of it can be heard by humans, but there is sound there just by virtue of the fact that something, a particle is moving through space and there's friction, there's sound, there's sound waves, there's a particle moving which makes a wave, so particle wave all at the same time. And within us, there's sound. We are sound. On, in some elemental way, we are a light and sound show, being human, being made of trillions of particles and cells that are in individually all alive and yet working together in harmony like some kind of orchestra and even though there's so much going on within our bodies it's not chaos it's actually very orderly otherwise we wouldn't work we wouldn't operate we wouldn't function we wouldn't heal we wouldn't go on very long so irregardless of who figured out how this all came to be and how we evolved into what we are it is what it is and whatever let's enjoy it while we're here now, after that experience, Rush kind of came into my consciousness. And so I heard them on the radio for years after that. But I didn't really pay that much close attention. I knew who they were. I knew the big songs through the 80s. In high school is where my second step into Rush happened. And ironically, it was while I was living in the United States. My parents had moved to a little city called Vienna, Virginia just outside Washington, D.C. for my high school days, my dad having gotten uh, a job there for three years and had a three-year work visa. So I started listening to Rush with a friend there because I was had a friend two doors down. We both loved music, and every day after school, we'd pretty much just go down to the basement where he had a ping-pong table and a pool table, two things I loved to play but never had around me as a child, and he had a stereo. And he kept putting music on. And invariably, he'd put uh, this band on and I wouldn't harp on it, but he'd be, he'd be like, oh, I like this band BTO. I'd say, oh, they're Canadian. What? What the heck? Then we'd listen to Brian Adams, who was huge at the time, and he'd, I'd say, oh, yeah, he's Canadian. He'd go, what? And then my friend kind of got into like, wow, I really like Canadian music. You know, whatever Canadian music is. And, of course, there's probably 10 or 15 bands that we would have been listening to in between all the other music of the day that we liked, and Rush became one of them. And that's when I actually started enjoying Rush. I did a year of university in the United States as well at George Mason University, 
and a friend of a friend of mine during a study session together started talking about Rush and he was a fan. He was the first person I knew that was like a Rush O-file or whatever the word may be. And that's when I realized, wow, I do like these guys. Why am I not paying more attention? And it wasn't because I'm Canadian, they're Canadian. You know, music is music. Having said that, there are some things I respect about them, and it's because they're such damn nice, polite Canadian boys when it comes right down to it. And men. Gentle men. In many, many ways. And uh, so I started picking it up. I started listening more. Now, the other part of the story is I'm a drummer and percussionist as well. And I kind of was born that way. I always have been. Started tapping on things when I was small and just enjoyed doing it. I never thought about it too much until music class came up in high school. And I wanted to play the drums, but damn it, they already had a drummer. So I ended up playing the French horn and then the clarinet. Not too exciting in a drummer's world, but you know what? I may do, and I enjoyed it somewhat. But knowing that I kind of listened to the drum parts a little bit more than the rest of the song a lot of the time in my head, even when I was listening to the radio, you know, and tapping along, as soon as I just got the least bit more interested in Rush, I realized, oh, crap. This is the guy I want to listen to. This is drumming. This makes sense to me. I like the way he expresses himself musically, not just drums along to the song. You know, it it was very... At the time, I didn't know, but I was feeling my way through his musicianship. And then I realized he wrote the lyrics, because you read the liner notes. And I was like, wow, this guy has a lot to say. And in the early days, it was very, a lot of metaphorical, allegorical lyrics, you know, little stories, uh, fantasies, things like that. But there were a lot of grains of, you know, humanity in it as well. And then that became more the focus over time was humanity, you know, the individual's rights and struggles. Um, what's important about the human condition? What did he observe about the human condition, you know? The little person versus the establishments, the systems, the structures. And those are things that, you know, I have investigated my entire life in order to be able to explain it as well. And so it all tied together. But with drumming, I started paying attention. So much so that eventually I wanted to play drums. And I got the first opportunity when my mom remarried and her partner's kids played. The two boys were, were guitarists. And at the time... The older one was in a band, and there was a drum kit in the basement because everyone rehearsed there, and of course it's easier for everyone to come to the drum kit than for someone to bring their frickin' drum kit to practice every week. And so it was there, and you know, I've never been the kind of person to just take someone's thing, use someone's thing, but I asked asked my stepbrother, hey, do you think if I just, you know, gently play along, can I try the drums for once in my life type of thing, and you play? And I sat down at the drums, and he played riffs of some current songs that I knew, probably ACDC and something like that and I just drummed along and that's when it hit me wow I can drum I just drummed along it kind of all made sense the way I pictured the drum kit and played along in my head from having me watch drummers just translated and so there you go drummer is born but of course I needed my own drum kit so um I said about investigating drum kits and now here's when you know you're, you're you're doing something just for the idea of it which I've done a few times in my life you know I bought a blue Mustang Mach 1 because I freaking loved the color of the car. It, it wasn't in the best of shape and I had to put a lot of money into repairing it. But you know, that's but that was a pretty, pretty big factor in my decision. It would look nice going down the road. And I'm not usually such a superficial guy, as you'll see. But there you go. So the drum kit I settled on was Pearl. And it was silver. 
And the reason was I had seen Neil drumming on a silver drum kit, and Pearl is awfully close to Peart. If you put a little line over the L, it would look the same. So in my little mind, I was being a little bit like Neil, without wanting to actually copy. Because I played a variety of music. I didn't just drum along to Rush songs all day long. I tried to, but they're freaking hard. And so I learned a lot drumming along to Neil. But you know what? I've learned, or I, I did learn much more listening to the words and even just reading them sometimes and sometimes listening to him talk about them. Now let's jump forward to about mid-90s. You know, a lot of their albums had had begun to be less well-received. Their style had changed, which is uh, something Rush does. It's still always Rush, but they tend to move with the times and, and you know, be influenced by music around them as well as um, just being open and experimental to whatever one of the three members would bring. You know, as one of them poignantly said one time, you know, there's nothing that has never been considered by Rush. If one of them brings it, they entertain the idea. And anything that they thought could be developed, would be developed, and ended up on an album, evidenced by the fact that Rush has no leftover material. And that, to me, is extremely telling of how consciously they created their music. If something they was valid to be worked on, they all felt the same way about moving forward with it, they did it. If they didn't, they got rid of it. They didn't put it away just in case. And I love that because it's being decisive. And man, being decisive is one of the great ways to get through life because it takes a lot of things off the table. It takes worry, stress, anxiety, because then you don't wallow in thinking. You just move ahead in feeling. So in this mid-90s, I heard an interview. Uh, I actually heard that, something on the radio during the day that said, and tonight, on whatever radio, there's going to be an interview with Neil Peart. And I was like, wow, he doesn't give many interviews. I'm going to listen to this. And so I did. And it was great to hear him speak. I'm not sure I had heard him speak much, if at all, before that, honestly. And to hear his voice, he's very calm. He's very um, intellectual. You know, he's, he's got a, a well-stocked brain. And he knows how to use it. That's the more important part to that. But in this, someone asked him about, you know, who's your hero? Who's, who, are, who are your musical heroes growing up? And he said, you know, there are none. and Which is why I shy away from being a hero. Which is why I wrote the song Limelight. You know, it's like, I can't pretend I know you if I don't actually know you. It doesn't work that way for me. It has to be, there has to be a personal connection. And so how can there be a hero? How can you idolize someone so much when you don't even know them? And then he said, in in place of that, he likes to be thought of and thinks of others as exemplars. And I was like, hmm, a little light bulb clicked off for me. Because that takes things out of the realm of ideas and philosophy, you know. Because you can idealize a hero, and they might be a crappy-ass person. They just did one thing you like. But they might not be a good example of even the thing that they're writing or performing art about. Neil is aligned, and that's why I respect him. He kind of is his art. We are our own art. We are our own music. And when we express it authentically, that's the stuff. And so I've used that ever since. I've never thought of anyone as a hero. I've never been adoring of someone so much that I have to meet them. You know, I have met a few people who you could care call famous but it's just because they were there and I was there um, I'd rather consider these people other people and interact with them on a friendly basis than 
some hierarchy of you know adoring fan and and uh, idol doesn't make sense and our humanity gets lost in it and i think that's what neil was getting at is you know that's what what is important is our humanity and it's not just to be overshadowed or given away lightly by whimsical ideas because if you're not being seen why bother being looked at so after that phase neil had his tragedy tragedies in life and went dormant for quite a while then he came back and was re-inspired and while they were gone on this hiatus which as far as the band can thought could have been permanent you know none of them the other two members considered doing anything going on with as rush because in in interviews when they were asked about it they were like there is no band without this guy you know rush is rush there's no replacing any of the members of this band and for them to love what they do so much but also be so human and so loyal and so respectful and so loving as to go well if he's not okay then we're done here we're more concerned that he's okay than that we have our musical expression in something that would compromise him moving forward like the integrity in that is off the charts and yet when it did naturally happen and they reformed it was um interesting and amazing that was the second concert i went to was uh the concert for i'm trying to uh get the album title into my head here one little victory being the whole the the uh lead off song with the fire and the dragon in the background on the concert screen and it was it was amazing i went to that concert with a friend and you know spine tingling not because of the music or the way they played it was just the fact that he was there and he was in his essence again and he was enjoying life that to me was far more important than the fact that i attended a rush concert the second of three that i attended over the duration of their career and so they kept making albums less frequently but changing and in a way getting deeper and in a musical way and in an underappreciated musical way getting better and here's what i want to get at on their last two albums so snakes and arrows i think 2007 and then clockwork angels 2011 2012 um they played more cohesively and interestingly as a unit than i had heard them play in any of their previous albums where they had amazing moments fantastic songs of being completely integrated with each other great solos the interesting thing about the last two albums and especially clockwork angels is how thick that album is with the three of them meshing together musically and his words meshing with um thoughts about humanity and life with a deep understanding and integrity and reverence for life and that really hit me the more i listened to clockwork angels over and over and again i'm going to give a track by track overview just like i kind of did with the garden here talking about what it means to life not just to me that neil experienced what he did and was able to express it so openly and honestly
And you know, I'm okay with death. I reconciled myself to death a long time ago, to my death, to the death of anyone near me. And I've lost people. By lost, I mean, you know, their physical body went away. You carry pieces with them, with you, pieces of them with you forward. And that's part of being human. That's part of the beautiful part of being human. When we're wise enough not to keep it in our head, then we're not mired in the tragic part of being human. And I don't know where Neil was on that scale, but I'd like to think that he had his inner circle of peace, of love, of unconditional understanding and respect. Because you could tell from about Clockwork Angels on I that that would be their last album. And in fact, during the making of that album, Neil said, you know, I feel compelled to get this album completed because I I need to get it done while I still can. And I, I think even though he didn't know when he was going to die, I'm quite sure he felt something diminishing in his physical capacities, whatever that was. And with that, is the obvious logical extension of like, I can't do this anymore, so I'm not going to belabor it. Like the fighter that, you know, fights past their prime just to make a final paycheck or to prove something. He had nothing to prove. My God, after that much good music, I am so grateful because even though he's passed, what he's created is here for us to enjoy. And it can be enjoyed right now as if it's fresh. Again, part of the great thing about the human condition. We can remember the past. We can project into the future. As long as we're not mired there, we're doing quite well. But the fact that we're able to create and inspire each other is one of the blessings. And he gave and gave and gave on that level. And so when he passed, that was very deep for me. As when almost family members pass or close friends, again, which I've experienced enough times to have had some very deep grieving periods in my life but which I'm happy to say were all very short grieving periods because I understand that life goes on and that's not a disrespect to the person that's passed in fact it's the deepest respect to life that when someone passes we allow it to happen as it happened take from it what we will and then move on ourselves and live our lives because no matter who passed we're here and we're allowed to keep going and so in the weeks that followed, I reinvestigated a few Rush songs and Rush themes and really dug into Clockwork Angels, figuring, oh, okay, now's the time. And wow, that's when all of this that I'm talking about today started to hit me and the depth of it started to really make sense. And wow, there were a lot of great tears shed. And I mean great because honest grieving, honest sadness, those tears, if they're as real as they are, are satisfying. And I've learned through my processes in life and my inner understanding, culminating in a beautiful experience in 2014 of letting go of having to think all the time, but being able to choose. Through that, I've learned that we're not here to be happy. We're not chasing happiness by any means. But satisfaction? Absolutely. And we can be satisfied in experiences of life, even if they aren't what we'd label, label happy or positive. But just having experienced it, 
for real, feeling it and then letting it go, that's what allows us to move on and continue to experience life, irregardless of what is coming next. Just because you get through something doesn't mean things are better forever. Neil knew that, and he did translate that through his words and music, and he's translated it through his passing. And that's why I'm speaking to you today, to honor that feeling, because that's what I talk about the most, is feeling, feeling, feeling. In the fullness of time, we can feel who we are, why we're here. And in the fullness of time, I can listen to the garden, cry, and it's very satisfying because that's where we meet as humans on the deepest level. Thank you, Neil. I love you. Hello, fellow humans, and thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, ever since I got this thing started, which was years in the making, I've been excited about uh, doing this and only this. It's what gives me the most pleasure in life is helping others help themselves. And it's actually what I know the best, despite all the other things I've studied for and uh, have had as careers, as experiences, as hobbies, as connections with life. This is it. So to that end, if you'd like to experience, if you'd like to support a very simple human doing this, it doesn't take much for me to survive and anything over and above that that I ever make from this will always go back into helping others directly. And you can support me by finding me on Red Circle Podcasts, which may be where you're listening. Uh, there's a donating information there. I also have an account with something called Libra Pay, where you can find me as Steve Alat, or you can send uh, a donation through PayPal, steve at illuminatingthedisconnect.com. If any of those aren't sufficient or fail, send me an email. Again, steve at illuminatingthedisconnect.com. We can figure something out. And uh, thanks for listening. I really, really hope it helps. And if it does, do send me a message. Thanks for your support. <laughs>